Well, today's reading in 1 Corinthians 8 it includes a bit of scripture that could probably feel to us very remote and strange as late modern listeners, readers, uh, so remote that we might simply tune it out. Meat sacrificed to idols is not our worry, is it? Uh, if we're worried about anything with our food, we want uh, it to be affordable, first and foremost, which it is less so these days. We want it to be fresh. We want it to be ethically raised, sustainably farmed, or at the very least, we want it to taste great. If I have my preference, it would all be deep fried. Amen. We're never concerned with how it might actually be, have been involved in the worship of an idol, right? You know, maybe the tailgating buffet at our college football temples might come closer here in the South, but it's not really the same, is it? But Paul's broader concern actually does extend to us, and it should be obvious to us what his uh, concern is. It's important for us to really try to unpack it. I think his concern is humility that is born of love for the sake of mutuality, of being together as Christ has intended, or to put it another way, belonging to one another even when it costs us something. In the backstory of Corinth, Paul's addressing some very specific problems and some controversies and some conflicts in the church. There is no shortage of them. Corinth is kind of a mess. It's just true. They're even arguing about whether or not Paul is a legit apostle. And if another teacher, Apollos, who is a more gifted orator and teacher, preacher, he, if he's the best one that they should be following. There's a lot of cultural baggage here uh, that's weighing everyone down. And given all the issues in his two letters to them, which is actually a correspondence we find out, we see these quotes that he puts in his writing that is quoting them. Um, in these two letters, you kind of have to wonder what was working in Corinth at all. So Paul is, ends up talking about this particular issue for three chapters. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 are all about this meat sacrifice to idols and the underlying issues related to it as they're attempting to live together as God's church. And now as Paul's representative, Timothy, he's going to personally deliver this letter to Corinth to help sort them out in this thing. And a part of me can't help but think, poor Timothy, right? Like virtually every young minister after him, he probably just wanted to be a professional blessing. Reading scripture and theology and preaching and teaching and baptizing and praying because why would there be any drama and conflict in God's church? Paul knows better and by this time, Timothy does too. Paul and Timothy have what Kate Bowler, I heard her speak the other day, she described as emotionally expensive jobs. Some of you have emotionally expensive jobs. Later in Ephesus, Timothy's ministry, the stress has his stomach in not so much so that Paul encourages him to drink more wine. In his second letter, Paul, to the Corinthians, Paul, uh, who's the bishop, admits to them, apart from other external dangers like persecution and shipwrecks and hunger and cold, it is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches that I'm living with, and it is so heavy and so hard. It's emotionally expensive. So we shouldn't be surprised that at times Paul sounds exasperated. At other times he's grieved, and at other times he's really firm, he's even forceful. But he says this in chapter 4, verse 14. And again, this is all important background. He says, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. 
For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. He cares a lot. He cares enough to tell the truth and he cares enough to find ways through the mess, even if they aren't the black and white solutions that they or we, if we're honest, would all prefer. And so before he gets into the hairy details, he says something else that's really arresting to me. He says in chapter 3, he says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? God's temple is sacred, it's holy, and you together are that temple. That is an astonishing idea, really. Maybe you say, oh yeah, of course, yeah, right. He's saying you, y'all, together are the sacred temple of God. That's what we're trying to live up to. How can we possibly do that? We know, obviously, as Paul emphasizes, it's emphasized Obviously, in Jesus' uh, promise that he would send the Spirit to help us, it's emphasized throughout Paul's letters and all the epistles, really, that we need the Spirit's help. In his second letter to Corinth, chapter 10, Paul reminds them of this, though, that their struggle to be the church is part of a cosmic conflict. It's spiritual. We have an enemy. It's not just a physical or a psychological one. It's not merely behavioral. It's not just emotional. Without an active humility that prioritizes love, the word is agape in the Greek, without that, we leave little room for the Spirit and a lot of room for the enemy of our souls and of our relationships and the church herself. Agape, love, it isn't mushy sentiment. It isn't something that just some people have more and others have less. It's a posture, actually, of welcome, of openness, commonality, and of generosity that's associated with sharing something, like a meal. The constant refrain in this letter is this call to active humility, often without even using the word, such as when he cautions them here to not be puffed up because of the knowledge that they have. Unfortunately, to many of us, humility sounds kind of like a passive thing, almost like a personality trait of mildness that comes easier to more agreeable and deferential people. Is that how you've, you don't have to raise your hand, but have thought about humility? It's just more of this kind of, this trait of mildness, personality trait. But that's not what humility is, biblically speaking. Biblical humility, we find out, is active it's something that you can just flat out perform. You can humble yourself. My definition for humility is this. The vigilance to resist the tendency to put ourselves at the center. Does that make sense? Humility is the vigilance, the active intentionality to resist the tendency to put ourselves at the center. What center? All the centers. All of them. Think about this. You can put yourself at the center in all kinds of ways, whether throwing your weight around like, like a bull in the pottery barn or just feeling perpetually sorry for yourself by loudly declaring your expectations or quietly judging people based on them. Humility and pride in all of us are directly related to how much at any given time we're preoccupied with ourselves. 
our own thoughts, feelings, rights, expectations, and self-preservation. And I think this is hard for most of us if we're humble enough to admit it. If we choose to be humble enough to admit it. Back in chapter 4, Paul even issues a call to question oneself, which relates to his arguments in chapter, chapter 8. He uses himself as an example of questioning himself. He's preaching to himself, and by the way, I always am, just so you know. He suggests that even if his own conscience as an apostle is clear, he might still be wrong. Well, that's scary. Conscience is a big deal for Paul, and it shows up in our text today. Noting that he's been given this trust, he says, to prove faithful, he nevertheless writes this, beginning in verse 4 of chapter 8. He says, I care very little if I am judged by you, or this is in chapter 4, sorry. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me, and he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. Yeah, we want to have a clear conscience, and we should, and it matters that we act based on what we feel, believe is true. We need to have a clear conscience. We want to be as certain as possible that we have done or we are doing the right thing. But here's the tricky and very humbling thing. That's no guarantee that we are right, that we haven't somehow kept ourselves at the center. In chapter 13, he says this. You've probably heard it before. We see in a mirror dimly. We look at ourselves and we don't actually see who we are. We know in part, he says. Only later will we know about uh, ourselves what God has already and always known about us. Now, that could be either really comforting or really challenging or both. And I think it's both. It accounts for our humanity. And it teaches us that though we're still going to operate, we're all going to operate out of our brokenness and our wounds and our limitations, God sees better than we do. That should be comforting to us. It allows us to be wrong. And yet to know that our wrongness isn't the final word. Like Paul, we need to honor our consciences, but understand they can be compromised because God will sort us out. And that helps keep Paul and us in the right posture. Or it should. This brings us back to today's reading in chapter 8. So here we find Paul in the hairy details, and he's talking about being puffed up again, prideful, particularly because some of them, those who have boldly written to him and making their case, they have the knowledge that idols are nothing, and so the food that's offered to idols and then sold at the market afterward, it's no big deal to eat it or to worry about it. Some of them have their shoulders back, they have their heads high, they're uninhibited by the freedom that they have, and Paul has taken issue with this. Because for some, it is a big deal. It's a big deal for some Jewish brothers or sisters, understandably, given the difference, obviously, in their, uh, their worship of the one true God. But it's also, and Paul mentions it, there's some Roman brothers and sisters who want to distance themselves as much as possible from their past. So the argument here in some ways is, well, who's right and who's wrong? What should all of us do? But this isn't the apostle's primary concern. 
And that's kind of a bit surprising if we make room for this. At other times in his letters, Paul is ready to pry people away from certain beliefs and practices and customs and moralisms and observances or concerns that aren't consistent with the new freedom that they have by grace under the new covenant of Jesus. These things have the potential to keep them from trusting Jesus, to live under law and to hang their hats on their moral performance. So he's more than ready to distance them from that. But in this case, he says, you can eat it or not. And in some cases, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Why? Because for Paul, one's individual righteousness and freedom is subordinate to one's active responsibility for others. For this new creation community of which you're a part by grace through faith the gift of God. That shouldn't surprise us biblically, but it's not very American, is it? Point is, some people in this community are going to come around the corner more slowly on stuff like this. It's harder for some. Paul is making room not just for the bald truth about idols and such, but for how hard it can be for our hearts to catch up with our heads. Or vice versa. For our feelings to catch up with the facts. Or for our consciences to catch up with grace. It's everyone's responsibility to make room for that. Paul is saying. The the Corinthians who wrote him, they want to carve themselves up in terms of the strong and the weak. I think we probably want to do that too. Paul uses their categories and he says essentially, fine. If you imagine yourself strong, then your strength is meant to serve the weak. It's kind of a brilliant argument. Otherwise, you're sinning against them and Christ, who, by the way, gave himself up for the weak. Paul also knows specifically that this relationship, their relationship to this kind of food, it was cutting across social and economic divides as well. If you were rich, you had the luxury of eating meat on your terms and of knowing the story of your food. But if you were poor, meat was mostly unavailable to you, almost all the time, unless there was a pagan festival, and then it was doled out to the masses and to the markets for you to buy afterward. So if you were socially powerless, listen, if you, were, if you didn't know the story of your food, you probably associated meat directly with paganism. It's the only time it was available. So how could you not? And listen, that's a hard thing to get over at the heart level. Paul is asking this. He said, are you, he's saying, are you willing to care about the feeble heart of a brother or sister and how it makes them feel to be a part of this community? Sure, in the knowledge that you've been given, you have freedom to eat that food, but you don't have freedom to dismiss the struggles of your spiritual family members who are still coming around. And the truth is we want to just say, get with the program. The sin, which Paul calls it in verse 12, is the act of a Christian trespassing into independence when and where we are reborn to a life of interdependence. Does that make sense? It's a sin against Christ because it cuts against the grain of what Christ has given his life to make possible. Us. Together. The sacred temple of God the church. 
And far from being uh, merely a mystical or spiritual union, the church is just, it's a practical, everyday union that plays out in real life. I have often called it God's social science project with a purpose of making him known and of redeeming us and making us better because Christ is our life and our center. It gets this, this, um, the church, the nature of the church, it gets each of us out of the center and it puts us back in mu- our mutual relationship to him. Do you know that's the most important thing about each of us is our relationship to Christ? Not how even we inhabit our relationships to one another. We're meant to regard each other according to the spirit and not the flesh, Paul will say elsewhere. As Paul says in chapter four, he says, what do any of us have that we have not received? That's humbling. And here's the question, what might this have to do with epiphany? Why is this one of our readings in year B? It has everything to do with it. The church, in all our dependence, in all of our interdependence, we are the ongoing embodied revelation of Jesus' achievement on the cross. We are the outworking of him being lifted up and all men and women being drawn unto him, Jews and Gentiles alike, and drawn to one another. We're making Christ known to the world still for who he is and for what he's done. Corinth, Ephesus, Thyatira, Greenville, and Village trying to be a blessing to one another and to the world. But being a blessing will often cost you something. As the letter unfolds beyond chapter 8, Paul talks about giving up his own rights for something better, something beyond himself. He famously said this in chapter 9. He said, to the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. What's he saying? I'm just trying to do whatever it takes for everyone to live in this freedom. But that's not formulaic. It's clear from Paul's ministry that he's realist about this too. And we need to pay attention to this. We don't have to pretend that it's easy or simply a matter of choosing to be deferential or agreeable because we work or worship, live with, and love some people whose whole grid for life amounts to do's and don'ts and the anxiety and tension that those constantly produce. We know that it's hard. Depending on who you have in your life, you could walk around perpetually trying not to upset or offend. My point is, it won't do us any good to imagine what Paul is saying here is a kind of silver bullet in every situation. But I do think that Paul is putting us on the right latitude to try to navigate the complex landscape of relationship and community amid difference and diversity. And it will probably mean giving more than we might think is fair or reasonable. For Paul, this is normal Christian life. It's cruciform. It's taking up a cross. It's doing everything we can for the blessing and benefit of others. Maybe if Paul were writing in our day, he'd be trying to help us improve our score on the empathy scale a little bit. But he doesn't really need to take the psychological approach. I don't think he does. He can simply say, this is about what we're reborn to be. 
All of us. To be a new family who witness to a world that is coming. A world where Jesus is at the center and has finally brought us perfect peace. We're witnessing to a world where his judgment finally clears up all the muddy stuff about others and ourselves and finally makes us everything we always wanted to be but struggled to become. A world awaits us to which we testify in our lives in which relationships aren't conditioned by our self-interest and self-protection, our misunderstanding, and broken frameworks that do what? They just, especially in our day, they just carve up the world into victims and oppressors, us against them. And it's seeping into the church. Probably always has. Friends, the Christian story at virtually every level and from virtually every angle is about relationship because that's who and what God is. Relationship, three yet one, so actively, so perfectly interdependent, expressive, and self-giving, and mutually interested, and mutually sustaining as to be indivisible entirely. There are no seams in God to be ripped apart, and yet God is three and one. Our God is a relationship who relates and generates a kind of embracing environment that holds the world together, as Paul says even in the scripture today. And draws everything and everyone in insofar as there is a willingness to be drawn, a willingness to be held. As Christians, we know, we know that willingness itself has to come from God. Without his love building us up, we can't really draw near to one another. We can't draw near without this compulsion to keep putting ourselves at the center. We can't really love as we ought to. And it will do us no good to pretend that it should be easy. Because to suggest that is to strip that cross of its power. So that's why, in case you're, you've forgotten, it's why we're here again and again and again and again to receive love and forgiveness and divine hospitality. You can't give what you don't have. You can't have it if you can't admit you need it. But you can have it. We can have it. That's why we're here with open hands around one table. That's why we're putting Jesus at the center again today. In the hope that his knowledge of us, expressed in love and self-giving, that it is going to change the way we live and it's going to change the way we love. Lord knows I need it. You probably do too. Lord, help us today to receive what it doesn't really begin in us. No matter what we're like, love has to come from you. So help us to feel loved, to know we're loved, to contend for the truth of that love and help us to give that love. We need your help in this. We thank you for your spirit. Guide us today in all the, the messy, the muddy, the sticky, the incredibly difficult realities of being the sacred temple where you desire to dwell when we come together. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.